everybody. Welcome to what is episode 10 of the Connecting Construction podcast. I'm your host, Evan Hill, along with Matthew Sprague and Dan Connery. It has been a good month and a half break. I hope everyone enjoyed their Christmas, their holidays, their Hanukkahs, their Thanksgivings. It has been a good little break for us, but we are back and happy to be here. Um, in case you missed episode nine, uh, as always, you can find it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud. We had the Antebi brothers, both Ron and John, uh, the original founders of eBuilder. Uh, just a quick couple items to plug that show, episode nine. We talked about the birth and growth of eBuilder from what really started out as nothing um, to what it is today. Uh, we talked about the greatest mistakes they made along the way, along the way as entrepreneurs. I think, you know, around the conversation of entrepreneurship in not just construction, but in the tech world, uh, I feel like a lot of times it's it's a very sort of positive and glamorous look. You know, you only hear the success stories. But one thing I really enjoyed about this podcast is we talked about all about the mistakes they made, all, all the times where they made wrong decisions, where uh, things blew up in their face, they they got mud in their face, and they were embarrassed. That 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 was some really great learning um, moments from that show. So highly recommend you go back and listen to it. And the other item we talked about was advice for other contact founders. So obviously, construction technology is completely blowing up. We're seeing new startups enter the space every single week. Um, Ron and John were really sort of, um, I guess you could say, longtime. Uh, professionals or, or founders in the space give give some really strong advice to other folks who may be new to the industry. So go ahead, listen to episode nine. Like I said, it is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, all the platforms that you get your podcasts from, it is available. So with that said, today we have a very, very exciting guest on the show. It is a first and last name that is not likely unfamiliar to you. Um, we have Darren Bechtel, the managing director of Brick and Motor Mortar Ventures. Darren was truly born in the industry. His family founded and runs the Bechtel Group. Darren, I'll introduce you in a second, but I, I think it was technically your great grandfather who started the Bechtel Group. I could, I could great, be wrong. Great, 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 great grandfather. Thank you. Um, I knew it was at least one great. Uh, you know, they're pretty much the largest private construction and engineering group in the world. Um, Darren has been an investor in context startups going back to 2012, probably even earlier. Uh, he recently founded Brick and Mortar Ventures, like I said, which exclusively focuses on investing and growing in construction technology related startups. Darren, welcome to the show. Glad to have you. So excited to have you here. I gave, you, I gave our audience a little bit of a glimpse into who you are, and frankly, most of our audience probably knows of your family and of you, but why don't you give us a little bit of a deeper glimpse into uh, Darren the professional, but also Darren the person. Um, I, I'd love to hear about how you got into construction um, as an early adult or as, a, or as a teenager. Sure, and thank you for having me, Evan. I, I think Darren the professional, uh, someday I hope to be professional, but having a lot of fun for now. Um, but yeah, as you said, uh, safe to say I was born into the world of engineering and construction. Uh, my, my first job site experience was at six months old when we moved to the island of Borneo into a job site trailer um, in the jungles. 
Um, my, my mom was a brave woman bringing my brother and I there um, at that young age. Uh, but I started working every summer throughout school since I was of legal age in a variety of different roles across the, the full spectrum of construction. Um, some of those were Bechtel jobs where, um, you know, I was carrying papers and yeah, <laughs> um, earning my stripes. Um, but by the time I turned 18, I'd been a gopher to the gopher on a home building crew, uh, forklift operator, Finnish carpenter, mason, uh, field engineer. Um, and uh, I spent the summer of my 18th birthday overseeing a team of pile drivers on the expansion of the world's largest coal terminal in Newcastle, New South Wales, Australia. So, you know, a bit of a, a weird background, but part for the course um, growing up in the Bechtel family. Um, you know, for those of us that had interest in working for the business, we were expected to, to come in uh, on the ground floor, in the trenches, get some dirt under our nails, some calluses, hopefully not lose any fingers in the process. Although I was, I was close doing some of the finished framing work um, in the uh, residential construction. But it's called experiential learning, you know, teachable moment. Um, uh, we, we have a policy in the family, too, that if you're interested in working full time, um, after school, uh, we're actually encouraged to go work somewhere else for at least two years um, before, um, you know, sort of ultimately coming to a decision. Does it seem like a right fit for you? Um, you know, with family business and that, that can be a, a topic of its own. Um, there's, there's really a question of sort of uh, want versus need, um, you know, as next generations are thinking about whether or not to come into the workforce, um, kind of carry the torch, um, uh, the company's in its 123rd year. Um, uh, so it's it, it impressive. It can be intimidating at the same time. Um, and for me, um, I've, I've got very much, you know, the engineering mindset, but also a bit of the creative. Um, I think that was probably best articulated. Um, my focus in undergrad on the, um, in the Stanford product design program, um, that if you're familiar with the D school, um, or their concept of user-focused design. It's this amazing mix of the engineering core training um, with creative problem solving and, and sort of rapid prototyping and tinkering layered on. Um, and so when, when the traditional ME um, guys went on to study in the, the high-level thermodynamics and stuff, I was building robotic monkeys to compete in a poo-throwing competition. Um, we, we won. Um, but you know, it was, it was fun. Um, and, uh, uh, I got recruited out of school, um, somewhat randomly to join a commercial architecture firm out in Washington, DC. Um, they had said as an architect, I got there and turned out I was CAD monkey, um, sort of slave labor. But, um, my first couple of weeks, um, uh, first weekend, I, I had to pull an all nighter on Sunday to build a physical model of one of their job sites. Um, uh, but I was converting hand sketches into CAD models. Uh, I was the only one with an engineering training, so I was reviewing some of the engineering shop drawings. Um, started doing design work eventually, um, was assisting with doing some of the concept development. It was great, and I got to wear a lot of hats, but um, you know, most architects have never actually built anything. Um, and there's a, a big disconnect between what looks good and what can you actually build, or um, how do you design for constructability. And for me, what I really missed was actually the, the tinkering, um, that sort of um, realization process. How do, you, how do you take something that was designed and actually make it come to life? Um, and so in a bit of a pivot, 
I left and joined a medical device startup as an R&D engineer um, where I designed a breast cancer biopsy device that we took from early prototypes through to regulatory approval and then early commercialization. Um, over the seven years that followed, I eventually became the turnaround CEO, trying to launch that company out of a bankruptcy restructuring as a uh, newly minted, overconfident, slightly arrogant uh, MBA. Um, and it was a very humbling experience um, where I really cut my teeth in startup operations and management. Um, and so that uh, you know, sort of crazy journey ranging from construction to innovation, engineering, tinkering, startups, and then ultimately trying to steer a ship, um, unfortunately, with a um, less than ideal outcome. Um, that really started turning me on to this world of emerging technology startups, the kind of organized chaos. Um, and in parallel to my own um, journey as a turnaround CEO, um, I started dabbling in angel investing and, and um, really fell in love with it. Um, I'd like to think it was strategic and not like a gambling problem that I was fostering, um, but I found it um, really rewarding, intellectually stimulating, um, kind of controlled ADD, working with a bunch of different entrepreneurs on different problems. Um, and um, uh, sort of double dipping at Stanford as an engineer and undergrad. And then in business school, uh, I was fortunate to be surrounded by um, very impressive um, innovators that were working on a number of different ideas. And so initially it was just kind of backing them, giving some of the earliest capital to get these ideas off the ground. Industry agnostic, um, you know, everything from travel to uh cryptocurrency-based social networking sites, you know, things I didn't really know a ton about, but you know, knew enough to be dangerous. And the the venture investing continued to scale. Um, I, I realized it was my calling. Um, also believed that um, to really succeed, um, that I firmly believe in the traditional institutional venture capital market. Um, raising money from others, I think, encourages good behavior um, and accountability. Um, it also helps you recruit and retain the top talent, um, get access to good deals. Um, uh, and I, I realized the world didn't need another generalist super angel or a generalist early stage investor. And so I did some soul searching to try to figure out where did I think I had an unfair advantage um, and a competitive differentiation over other fund managers. Um, where is there hopefully an opportunity to carve out and own a category of investing and build out a, a, and earn uh, a sort of uh, identity as a must-have early stage investor, um, kind of topic expert. And let probably, me uh, yeah. let me jump in here real quick. You mentioned Stanford a couple yeah. of times. I uh, I am personally a University of Washington graduate, so uh -huh. I will refrain and yeah. bite my tongue from making any Pac-12 yeah. football references. Yeah, we, it, it was it was pretty good when I was there. <laughs> ups and downs. Beautiful stadium. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what brought you to Stanford? Just out of curiosity, do you do you have family that went there, or were you a first time sort of familial uh, generation student there? A um, lot of family that went there, and I actually grew up going tailgating at football games. Um, you know, I bounced around a lot um, around the world when I was handbag size, um, but the San Francisco Bay Area and specifically the peninsula is where I still would say uh, I feel like home. Um, or at least my roots were. 
Um, okay, so I, I'm going to make the assumption that you're also a 49ers fan. Is that right? Grew, grew up going to the games. I, I have to admit that um, I uh, some of my passion following NFL started to dwindle when I got turned on to Australian rugby. Um, <laughs> and I came back and saw, you know, quarterbacks take dives because they didn't want to get tackled. It was slightly different, but yes, I, I, I grew up going to the Niners games. <laughs> well, you're going to hate me right off the bat because I am a loyal and involved Seahawks fan. So we, uh, might, as well, we might as well just end the podcast yeah. right here. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. I've got another call coming in. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, uh, before we jump in a little bit into the brick and mortar venture stuff, I, I want to dive a little bit deeper into that. Tell me, I know we talked about football a little bit, but tell me more about your life personally, because obviously you're this, you're at least it appears you're this very accomplished person professionally, but what, what does Darren look like, you know, um, not working? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, a common thread there that's uh, inherent in venture too is the calculated risk taking. Younger years, the the calculation was probably a, a little slapdash. I've got I've had four ACL surgeries, a shoulder surgery, you know, broken toes, broken hands, um, and that was that was a mix of sports and um, a, a condition that the doctor described as lack of sense of self preservation. Um, but uh, you know, I I love sports, love the outdoors, everything from you know backpacking to telemark skiing, ice climbing. Um, and so it was a, a real passion, um, for being out. I think anything that involved gear, um, helped too. There's, there's another condition called voidophobia, which is fear of unused storage space. So, you know, it's something I was battling for a long time. Um, but, uh, love it. And, and a mix of the sort of solo sports as well as team sports. Um, I played, uh, lacrosse in high school and college, um, soccer, tennis, did rock climbing, um, and randomly did uh, rodeo for three years. Um, I went to a, a fairly unique boarding school that is known as the uh, a place with the horses. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was a great fun experience. Um, as you might be able to tell from the hair, also a little surfing in there. Um, most recently, the new add-on um, was uh, kiteboarding, which for a while was a prerequisite to be in the uh, startup and venture world in uh, San Francisco Bay Area, but a lot of fun. You sound like a multi-talented guy. So let's let's uh, jump back it, into brick and mortar. About level of talent, but uh, like, <laughs> well, know, okay, multi-experienced. Let me put it yeah. that way. Uh, I think another thread there is just kind of continuously learning and exploring. Um, uh, you know, many would say that I'm uh, sort of one of the biggest um, characteristics is just curiosity. Um, sort of being explored by nature. Love it. Well, let's jump into brick and mortar. I know you started to get into it a little bit. Um, how was it born? I, I, I know you were, you've obviously been into the sort of pre-seed, you know, venture funds going back to 2012, but yeah. what actually brought you to start brick and mortar? How did the idea form? How yeah. did it come to be? How did it come to life? Yeah. That, that, that sort of soul-searching journey um, that I was mentioning earlier in, in about 2015 was when I knew that I thought venture was my calling, but I needed to have some sort of focus, um, really narrow in, tighten up the strategy, um, and figure out what my due north was or what 
um, uh, you know, what we're trying to focus on as a fund. If I was going to go out and try to institutionalize the investing into a traditional fund um, instead of uh, essentially gambling with my money. Um, uh, in 2015, I looked back at the legacy investments of this pretty eclectic portfolio of angel investments to see if there are any common threads between the breakout performers and Lo and behold, the embarrassing realization was um, it seemed like where I, I, I kind of knew what I was doing um, was when it came to, you know, what is now getting described as contact. Um, but um, we, we sort of more broadly say emerging technology to improve the way that we design, build, operate and maintain the built environment. So for those who know the buzzwords, you know, AEC, FM, O&M, um, when when I'm talking to other VCs, they have no idea what that means, and that was that was one of the reasons too that I, I realized that I was in a very unique spot, being able to speak the language of startups, venture, construction, be able to bounce between those communities, and having um, sort of earned the trust of the audience by having done and continue doing instead of just you know reading a couple of reports and then running with it. And so that, that aha moment in 2015 was when um, decided to launch Brick and Mortar initially just as a, a brand on AngelList, um, you know, had a strategy, um, uh, another uh, large and actually the largest sort of built world venture fund out there is called Fifth Wall. Um, and they're focused on prop tech, um, primarily um, global real estate technology. Um, Brick and mortar. When we launched it, it was me and Brennan Wallace, the the founder, co-founder of Fifth Wall, and we sort of more broadly said, built world tech. You know, it's all related. It's all physical. Let's do it. But quickly realized that the sort of investment landscapes and the technologies uh, stage of technology development was very different. Real estate tech was much more mature. Rounds were larger. A lot more capital going into it, and you know, when it came to construction tech, nobody else knew what a subcontractor was um, or what self-perform meant. Um, uh, and so, you know, that was a um, great opportunity, much earlier stage, required less capital um, and trying to do too many things under one roof with a, a very wide range of stages and sizes of investments. Um, you know, I, I, I wanted to have a, a more tightly focused um uh, investment strategy. And so we, Brenda and I split these two areas of focus, um, really honed in on the AEC kind of approach for brick and mortar. Um, and, uh, that was, that was the birth. We threw up a website and started getting calls the next week saying, Hey, you know, we are the tier one VC. We heard you guys are the experts. We put it on mute say, Oh my gosh, these guys think we're the experts you know, let's fake it. And we get into the conversations and say, oh, wow, we actually are, you know, there's a, there's a pretty low baseline here. Um, but uh, so we, we started scaling up the portfolio, um, eventually succeeded in convincing uh, 12 corporate strategists to back us in our first fund of pooled capital or traditional institutional capital um, and have been uh, deploying capital since. So as, as a VC who see, oversees and, you know, is exposed to many different what you're calling emerging technologies and, and different types of products, I'm sure you guys have um, founders pitching you on a, on a daily, weekly basis. 
Um, I want to open up with a sort of sort of general um, question and, and just see where this goes in your mind. But with all with all these different you know different products and you know new startups coming out every single week, what are some like high level trends or products specifically that have recently piqued your curiosity? Um, you know, this is this is an opportunity to plug anything that you know has caught your attention recently. Yeah. Um, our approach is very much uh, the sort of use case both uh, use case based approach to investing. Um, you start with the pain points and kind of back it out from there, um, and that that's where having a, a, a sort of deep understanding of the nuances of the industry, the pain points that the folks out in the field or in the trailer or in the office are managing, helps us really kind of carve out the technology landscape and say basically what are the themes. What are the types of solutions we're looking for to solve the problems? Um, you know, realizing that um, just going after pain points may not be a good idea because it also has to drive productivity or cost reduction or safety improvements. Um, you know, offering free ice cream out in the field might solve a pain point and make people happy, but, you know, questionable, the, the impact on um, uh, profitability. There's an argument to say, you know, unlocking that untapped potential of workers through, you know, ice cream could work. But um, those categories, um, you know, another way you can do it is try to look to that that future of autonomous constructions and robots and drones in a very Fantasia-like way are, are sort of building the world. Uh, I don't believe in the future of a, a humanless job site. Um, I do think it will look very different, but understanding what are those sort of foundational technologies or solutions that are going to get you there, um, usually those same solutions have immediate value. Um, that it's first you got to connect the job site, and I'm I'm preaching to the choir here. <laughs> um, that you know you can't leverage modern day cloud-based tools if you can't get the job site connected and speaking to the cloud. Um, what a lot of people don't appreciate is that especially in certain types of construction that is much more difficult than the average joe and jane assume um that you know saying well 5g we're good it's like well if you're building the first 5g tower in a developing country guess what <laughs> um or if you're using gps and you're doing underground guess what um you're trying to use basic you know location tracking solutions and you're in a metallic dynamic you know, risky environment, guess what? This isn't, uh, you know, an office building with IT that can put in different nodes and make this easy. There's some real challenges. And, and depending on the type of job too, the number of different stakeholders that are all working together or are trying to avoid each other or, you know, this, that, and the other, there's, there's a lot of challenges, a lot of different people all needing different information um, and a, a real complex production um, involving tasks and schedules and payments and qualifications and the people to do the work and the equipment to do the work and the maintenance and operations, just get that going and visibility of everything offsite as it's coming to site. So, a, you know, where do you, where do you want to start? <laughs> um, and I think it's interesting when we do get pitches, um, you can kind of tell who's come from outside the industry. I mean, who's come from inside the industry um, that, um, 
you can look at successful ideas and other verticals and say, well, I, I was reading about construction. It sounds like there's a lot of fertile soil. Um, you know, how, how about we do this? And it's, it's kind of, you know, um, moving over a tried and true solution and then trying to tweak it for construction versus somebody that has had a very unique experience that um, is representative of a big problem. Um, and they've brought in the technical talent to try to build that solution, over, uh, focusing on a very specific point solution or problem. Um, our job is to then evaluate those and not just say what's a good idea or what's a bad idea. Um, we oftentimes have to make um, the, the difficult call of saying this is a great idea, but it's not a good venture investment for us. Um, and that's, that's very different. You know, we, we're in the business of trying to maximize the return on our investors capital. And I think for most people, if you've got a, a guaranteed opportunity to double your money, that's a good investment. That doesn't work for us, unfortunately, because we're making risky bets early and we're trying to look for things that have that 10 X 50 X or hundred X potential return. Because as smart as we'd like to think we are, we're not going to have a hundred percent hit rate, um, and we need to make sure that those successes far outweigh the the losses, so that we can try to target top quartile venture returns, which are anchored around twenty five percent IRR. Um, so that's that's a big hurdle. Um, another challenge there is that a, a thriving private business that's throwing off dividends that's a great thing to have a piece of, but unfortunately, also doesn't work for venture. Um, that we were tasked with maximizing the returns, exiting, and then handing over the money to our investors in a 10-year time frame. Um, and so it's, you know, we, we talk with people early enough that sometimes we can help guide them and say, look, it's, um, it's not true that it's venture or bust. Um, but the second you take venture dollars, your due north is set and you're pursuing an exit. Um, so... Yeah, the uh, the part I wanted to layer in, it's interesting, the 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 way you look at ventures and some of the challenges, just it is, it's the same thing that we have in established yeah. technology companies. So it's making sure that when you're bringing new employees in, yeah. do we understand the industry? Because people come up with great ideas that we should yeah. be building. And so it's, it's just interesting, the mindset you have is what we need to have. It's actually yeah. the function that Matt... Evan and I feel within our own company is rejecting and, and funding. Our funding yep. is time-based, not dollars-based. So yep. uh, so a question, uh, anyways, I just found that interesting. But the, the a question yep. I have for you, it, it hit me on your comment about a, uh, a personless job site. Mm -hmm. So do you have a perspective? And if you do, would you share it with us on what do you think uh, technology, and maybe you can do a venture capital spin on this, mm -hmm. uh, what our responsibility is when we are driving towards less people on a mm -hmm. job uh, mm -hmm. to the people who are now no longer employed in our industry. So yeah. it's something that I, I stay awake at, some, at night sometimes thinking about is, gee, we did great, like Trimble's proven how many, how many less surveyors you need because yep. we have technology, but uh, I sit there and go, yep. what the heck are those people supposed to do for work? Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, you know, this would, this would be, um, I think, uh, keep me awake at night if we had a surplus of talent. And unfortunately, um, we've got a real shortage of talent. Um, you know, in, in the case of some of our investments that are 
robotics and are automating certain labor intensive tasks, particularly those involving unions, um, there's a natural question of concern that comes up and say, you know, what's, how is this going to go over? Um, and we've actually seen that many of the unions are excited and want to embrace technology because a real tough situation to be in is you get a call um, and there's a request for 10 workers and you only have five that you can send. That does not work well. But if there's a technology that allows one person to do the job at two, problem solved. Um, and, you know, if, when you say robotics, it gets a lot of people nervous because they start thinking of Terminator. Um, but, you know, when you say smart equipment, that's very different. There's not a whole lot of people that are upset that they don't get to use a shovel as much as they used to, um, to, you know, dig trenches um, or do excavation. Um, and that was just a sort of natural progression of developing smarter tools and alternative ways of doing things so you can free up human talent to focus on the bigger problems um, that, you know, we've got uh, just from a global society standpoint, we've got some real issues that the amount of critical infrastructure that needs to be developed and constructed over the next 20 years, we don't have the people that can do it. We don't have the money to do it and we can't do it fast enough. And so we need to, there needs to be a, a serious paradigm shift to figuring out how do we reduce the cost of capital projects improve the safety and quality, you know, design and build in more resilient ways, um, then also how to do that with a lower carbon footprint. Um, and so, you know, bring on automation of certain tasks. Um, you know, there's, there's enough work to do. I'm not, I'm not too concerned about it. So Darren, I, my question revolves around utilization of data. So mm -hmm. if we look at yeah. the evolution of yeah. construction technology, it, it kind of all started with, well, not all started, but it, it's gone from uh, the digitization of, yep. of manual processes. Yep. And now because we digitize those things, we have this abundance of, of data. And yep. now the, the kind of like the buzz topic in the industry or one of the buzz topics is, is, is the concept of digital twins. Yep. Um, so I'd be curious in, in one of the, the first things that's being tackled is what the hell is a digital twin? What's that? I said, it's also kind of like them. There's not really a. a exactly. And, and so, so that's yeah. actually one of the ways that I talk to people is that I go, it's actually in the evolution. And for me, it's the evolution of the concept of BIM. Maybe it's yeah. the utilization of BIM. So yeah. I'd be curious to, to hear, you know, number one, from, yeah. from from a VC standpoint, what does digital twin mean to you? Yeah. Um, and then number two is is how, uh, well, you know, well, where do you think this fits into into any of the, any of the uh, startups that you're working with, or, or yeah. you know, is it is it is it becoming prolific as yeah. well as just a hot topic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, that's. <laughs> um, I think it, when. Typically, when you use, um, people are thinking about the concept of reality capture and building a digital model of the physical world. Um, another way of looking at it, though, is it's just digitization and you're seeing, hopefully, real-time or near real-time data that is allowing you to see the world in a digital way with rich information layered onto it, um, which, you know, has is, is got 
amazing implications from being able to analyze progress, um, productivity, being able to assess the impact and improvements of certain technologies or tasks. Um, you know, you look to the world of manufacturing, there's a lot of you know, lessons learned there that we should be able to apply. Uh, a, a real challenge that a lot of people were experiencing while experimenting with new technology is there wasn't a great way to see how, how, how did this impact things? Was this good or bad? <laughs> um, you know, can, can we really assess the positive impacts or the negative impacts um, if we don't really have a good sense of the baseline? Um, and so in, in this sort of digital transformation journey, step one is just digitizing and it's getting data. But as you pointed out, you know, you, you quickly start swimming in data and most people don't want the data. Um, uh, using life sciences as an analogy, uh, you know, the advent of being able to do um, lab work and get, you know, blood work regularly done up and get some of your vitals is great, but most people don't want to know what their numbers are. You know, they, they, most people know how to read it. They are looking to a physician instead to translate it and say, how am I doing? Well, um, and, eating bacon. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Butter my bacon and bacon my sausage. Um, and the continuing that analogy, it's great to be able to get a baseline and see how are you doing from this point in time versus that point in time. You know, the, the concept of the annual checkup is better than no checkup. But what's great is if you can see more real-time data and be able to see trend lines, um, if you're able to get insights, not just the data itself. And what, what would have amazing implications in the world of construction is that instead of having that, that annual checkup where a doctor says, unfortunately, you're in the red, being able to cut things off before you get there, all the way to the point saying you're in the green, but you're tracking towards yellow. Let's do a course correction. Instead of the reactionary approach, this is the proactive, preventative approach. And so the, I think many people jump all the way to uh, as far in the future as they can and say, we want automation. There's a lot of value before that you get there where it's just digitization, being able to get insights, um, optimization. I think um, uh, until the, the plans for the built world are designed perfectly and delivered perfectly, there'll still be need for human judgment, um, especially when reworking existing um, conditions. Uh, you know, you open up the wall and you see a bent coat hanger and a shoelace, you know, a, a computer using computer vision might not be able to compute. Um, but, you know, your local sub might know the person who put that in 15 years ago <laughs> and know what's going on. Um, and so I think the going back to the specific question of the digital twin, um, it, it, it's trying to basically say, how are we digitizing what's out in the field so that we can compare it either to previous versions of that twin to see what's different or compare it against the model and the plan of what we're supposed to do. See, how are we doing? Or are there conflicts? You know, did we mess up? Um, how are things tracking? Um, and then more and more, you can build a richer model, both during construction, but also after commissioning um, to be able to say, we're going to use those same models um, to represent the um, sort of physical health and condition of that asset. Um, start laying in smart sensors um, for building health um, uh, sort of monitoring, um, preventative maintenance, maintenance, re maintenance records, 
training. Um, you know, we've seen some pretty cool stuff um, from virtual reality training um, situations that instead of playing a video game, you're you're essentially playing a video game in the recreated environment of exactly what things are going to look like. And so you can get towards, um, you know, almost a muscle memory um, that there's no surprises. Um, and the great thing about construction is that on a, a, a sort of well-managed project, you know, should know exactly where things are, where people are, where the materials and tools are, what the status of the project is at certain points in time. And so you can really start simulating and playing out the sort of play of the day well in advance so people know their role um, and start identifying opportunities for improvement. Um, identify where were those bottlenecks or where did things go sideways? What what are things that we either just need to, to train on as a team or where should we look to try to op, um, uh, automate um, a, a specific area that would continue running into problems. So cool. My, my last question for you, and you, you partially answered this anyways, but I want you to pick out the piece, specific pieces is as the name of this podcast and mm -hmm. also one half of the simplification of Trimble's entire strategy for the next four years, which is connect and scale. I don't consider and an official word, so I'm going to say connect scale. Yeah. Uh, so on the connect side and you're on the connecting construction podcast, what the, where are the area two things where what are the areas you think companies like Trimble should be focused on or maybe your startup portfolio on connecting uh, the industry and where what do you see as the benefit and 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 we think of connecting from a data perspective so yeah. my quick example is I, I was on a different podcast on your side of the podcast this time and I was talking about one of the things that irritates me is the number of times and the number of different systems the same RFI is entered into. Uh, same data is being typed into the subcontractor system, into the contractor system, into the architect system, their consultant system, the owner system. That seems stupid to me. Uh, so anyways, just pontificate on that. Yeah. And so where, where should Trimble be? I, I would say, um, please keep buying startups because um, that's, that's great. That's great for us. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, very much core um, to some of the secret sauce of Trimble. It's some great data. And this, this ties into digital twin um, GIS data when you're building in the physical world um, off of a, a sort of concept or model. Um, that is critical information, um, knowing exactly where you are. It, any data you collect, if you're able to really pinpoint that into a space and time, um, that allows you to really focus on driving productivity improvements and, and safety as well. Um, and so that is that is a wide variety. The, the better that the sensor technology gets um, to be able to have um, greater accuracy, um, more real-time data, um, better battery life, um, that starts to get really exciting. Um, you know, the, it, it would be worth a lot of money to know exactly where all of your people are, all of your equipment is, all of your material, what are they doing? Um, how did the day go as, as a builder? Did I make money today or did I lose money today? <laughs> um, and how can we start optimizing, um, this whole, um, uh, production. Um, uh, and so 
I mean, that is that is a massive piece of the pie. Um, if you start getting autonomous equipment, it, it needs to be able to have instruction. Uh, it needs to have direction. Um, and a big part of that is not just the task. It's not pick this thing up. It is this thing is over here. Get to it. Pick it up in a certain way. <laughs> place it over here. Um, catalog where that was, um, what the status is. Um, hugely valuable. And then tying together all the sensor data, you have to be able to have the software platforms that allow the user to get the insights that they're looking for. Again, because most people don't want the data. Um, I think there's a challenge that, you know, in the, the early days of this digital transformation, a lot of the users felt like they had to build the solutions to get the insights um, and that there would be a competitive advantage. But there's um, we believe great value in being a customer of a thriving, profitable technology provider um, so that the builders can focus on their core competency, what they are uniquely good at, and leverage the best tools. Uh, you know, you don't see builders making their own hammers um, or getting into, you know, heavy iron production. Um, but there might be times where there's something unique that they do or that it is worth investing in having a proprietary solution. It could be what goes on the hammer or it goes on to that heavy iron. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, I would say from the uh, reality capture data side, um, the data collection side, um, GIS data, that is that is critical <laughs> um, to be able to know not just kind of what do I see, but where am I? right now <laughs> and where is that thing that i see where is where are those um uh, where's the point data supposed to actually fall and overlay uh, yeah well i think that is a perfect wrap to today's show darren you are a fun person to speak to we went way overboard on time hopefully we didn't run into any other meetings or, or anything like that but hey darren um i'm gonna throw you on the spot two questions for you as we close out the show Number one, uh, what are you working on? What upcoming projects are you excited about? What do you want to plug? And then number two, where can people find you and learn more about you and what you're doing at Brick and Mortar? Sure. So let's see what I'm working on. Uh, preschool applications. It is way more competitive than I thought, um, but hopefully we'll get to the other side of this. Um, no, we're, um, so we're several years in. Um, and have been excited about sort of um, the evolution of the uh, sort of construction innovation landscape. Um, you know, we, we have to continue to refine our investment thesis and strategy, but at least we have a plan and a fool with a plan is better than fool without a plan. Um, so we're kind of doubling down um, on our investment thesis, our focus on early stage investing uh, there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and so we're still um, uh, sort of combing uh, the global landscape to try to find best in class solutions and teams focusing on each of those different use cases. Um, we have a, a targeted investment approach. We're not investing like an index. Uh, you know, we're not trying to invest in every drone company out there. Um, we really start by focusing on those use cases and trying to find those teams that are developing um, the best solution in our mind and put our resources behind them and help in that kind of company building 
um, uh, process. So we, we continue to march on there. Um, uh, we're, we're also in the business of raising our own funds going forward. So that's always kind of like the job of a nonprofit director. You're, you're always trying to raise money. Um, uh, remind me of the other questions. <laughs> the second question was, uh, where can people learn more about what brick and mortar yeah. does? Yeah. So, um, uh, great place to start is our website, uh, brickmortar.vc. Um, uh, there's a, a online submission there for anyone who's got an idea that they want to uh, um, promote, have us take a look at. Um, we do try to make it our job to see um, and in some way touch every uh, construction startup out there and even just innovator. Um, nothing's too early. Um, we spend a lot of time with people that are just, you know, tossing around ideas and trying to um, sort of galvanize what they're working on. Um, we've helped build out a bit of a global community, um, uh, sort of group therapy network um, for those that are really trying to drive productivity um, uh, improvements. Um, and that's called the, the Society of Construction Solutions. Um, and so there's a, you can look for that online as well and find a local chapter. Um, but uh, yeah, reach out, shoot us an email, um, info at brickmortar.vc. There you have it, folks. Darren Bechtel, episode 10 of the Connecting Construction podcast. Darren, I know it has been a crazy 13, 14 months for um, our entire nation and, and the world. So truthfully, genuinely, uh, when I say this, um, we mean it. Uh, we hope you're staying safe. We hope you're staying healthy as well as your family. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Um, thanks again, Darren Bechtel, Brick and Mortar Ventures. Um, that is episode 10 of the Connecting Construction podcast. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in today's podcast. We will see you on the next episode. Stay safe.